This is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Reeducation. Our guest today is Commentary's executive editor, Abe Greenwald, and we will be discussing Cry Bullies. There was a time in America when bullies plagued our schools and workplaces. We all know the type. The jock who stuffs the freshman into a locker. The terrible boss who berates an employee in front of her colleagues. The yellers. The punchers. The practical jokers. And at least when I grew up in the 1980s, the bullies usually got away with it. Snitching was considered shameful. The best chance one had to defeat a bully was to fight him yourself. This dynamic was probably best captured in the 1984 movie Revenge of the Nerds, where a group of outcasts at the fictional Adams College are kicked out of their dormitory in their first week of school after the football team burns their frat house down in a raucous party. The homeless freshmen try to rush fraternities to avoid living in cots laid out at the gymnasium, but no one accepts them. So they form their own frat, and the jocks go to war with them. Eventually, the nerds learn to stick up for themselves, and in the process, stick it to the jocks. You just got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. As you hear in this clip, the coach, played in the scene by a young John Goodman, implores the bullies to exact revenge. Well, if I was you, I'd do something about it. He incites a pogrom. The bullies burn the ner- nerd frat house. And redeem myself in the eyes of my father, my maker, and my coach. Well, let's get those nerds! 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 What are we waiting for? But this time, they don't get away with it. Brave nerd named Gilbert, after being shoved in a swimming pool, makes his way to a stage during a homecoming weekend ceremony, and he shames the football team. He shames his tormentors. I'm a nerd, and uh, I'm pretty proud of it. Hi, Gilbert. I'm a nerd, too. I just found that out tonight. We have news for the beautiful people. There's a lot more of us than are of you. I know there's alumni here tonight. When you went to Adams, you might have been called a spaz or a dork or a geek. Any of you that have ever felt stepped on, left out, picked on, put down, whether you think you're a nerd or not, why don't you just come down here and join us, okay? Come on. Now, it should be said that this movie would never be made today because many of the acts of nerd vengeance constitute criminal harassment, such as their break-in at a sorority, installation of hidden video cameras, and then the sale of naked photos of women during Greek weekend. It was the 1980s. It's a different time. Nonetheless, Revenge of the Nerds was really ahead of its time. Because the new masters of our economy, our culture, and our politics are no longer the cruel bullies. But they're the outcasts. They're the nerds who know how to code. Casual racism, sexism, homophobia are really not tolerated as inside jokes anymore in boardrooms and on the golf course, although I'm sure there are some exceptions. But, you know, that kind of thing is a red flag. It will get you canceled. It will get you fired. It's no longer shameful to snitch on your coworker or colleague, 
it's kind of heroic in a sense to hold your classroom or your workplace accountable. Just listen to this exchange. The exception is because other people have rights too, not just walk, walk away. Walk away. Walk away. Walk away. Walk away. This was a group of students in 2015 at Yale University berating Nick Christakis, a professor and master of a residential college. His wife, Erica Christakis, sent out an email explaining how it wasn't for her to tell college students how to dress for Halloween. Free speech and the ability to tolerate offense are the hallmarks of a free and open society, she wrote. In other words, Professors shouldn't have to protect students who are old enough to vote or serve in the military from being offended by an off-color costume at Halloween. You don't have a right to not be offended. Turns out that at least a few Yale students back then, and probably many more today, believe they did have such a right. Now this performance from nearly seven years ago is the behavior of what the brilliant British author Julie Birchall calls the crybully, a hideous hybrid of victim and victor, weeper and walloper, she writes. Now, we find them everywhere these days. There are the student activists who hurl epithets at a college speaker whose very presence on campus allegedly causes them harm. There's Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who accuses her colleagues of being bought off by pro-Israel money, and then claims to be silenced and the victim of death threats when those colleagues express offense. The most recent example of the cry-bully is Washington Post national reporter Felicia Somnes. Last week, she began a campaign against her colleague Dave Weigel after he retweeted an off-color joke. Every girl is bi, you just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. That was the retweet. Somnes captured the retweet in a screenshot and wrote above it, fantastic to work at a news outlet where retweets like this are allowed. Now, it just said, Weigel did not double down. He erased the retweet. He apologized on Twitter and personally to Somnes. In a normal world, that would be it. I'm offended. Okay, I'm sorry. Tweet deleted. But Somnes didn't let it go. She wanted to make sure her newspaper would not allow it going forward. For the next four days, she continued to shame her institution for not taking action against her colleague. When another Post reporter responded on Twitter, saying that people make mistakes and that she was targeting a colleague unfairly, Sonnes accused him of trying to stifle her efforts to hold the Post more accountable. 
Now, Twitter can be a sewer. All of us with a public profile endure abuse from time to time, and Somnus is no exception. As she attracted more attention to her campaign against the Weigel retweet, lots of randos unloaded vitriol and abuse. But Somnus's many threads about Weigel also attracted vitriol and abuse directed at him. It's just the nature of Twitter. It's the nature of the medium. Now, finally, the editors at The Post eventually relented. Somnus won. She cry-bullied them into suspending Dave Weigel without pay for a month. So did Felicia Somnes make the Washington Post less misogynistic? Did she make it a better, less toxic workplace? I don't think so. Dave Weigel, who I've known for nearly 20 years, is a pussycat. As soon as he heard a colleague was offended, he deleted the tweet and apologized, which is what you would expect. What was the point of demanding he be punished? Was this a message to the other Washington Post journalists? Because as I see it, the real victim was Dave Weigel. He made a mistake, he apologized for it, and then he had to pay fairly severe penalty. Why? Because a colleague claimed to be harmed. This is no way to run a newsroom. It's no way to run a college. It's no way to run an office. It's no way to run a country. America has made really pretty impressive strides in the last half century as the excluded have forced institutions to include them. The nerds are winning. One way we know this is true is that bigotry today is a professional death sentence, as it should be. So it's worth taking a moment to appreciate how much ground the old bullies have lost in our culture, as just as so many new bullies take their place and use their status as victims to bully those that may offend them. Well, we are delighted to have as our guest executive editor of Commentary Magazine, a dear friend of mine who has written, in my view, one of the most important essays of the last 10 or 15 years on This is a Revolution and in his follow-up to that last year on looking at the counter-revolution for Commentary Magazine. It's Abe Greenwald. Thank you so much for coming on The Re-Education, Abe. Thank you for having me, Eli. Well, let's talk about because this was in the news this week, but it has been a theme in our culture. Cry bullies, as you know, this is the great term that Julie Birchall, the British author, came up with, I think, in 2015. And it's a kind of new archetype of person in our workplace, in our, in our universities, in our classrooms. And it's, I think it's, an, it's worth kind of exploring this new kind of bully. Yeah, I think in some ways the cry bully is sort of the essential political actor of our age. You know, mm. they, they are the ones that sort of shape our day-to-day -day politics. The news cycle tends to revolve around them. And of course, extraneous tragedies that occur. And it's not even, it's not even completely around uh, sort of culture war issues, although that's overwhelmingly where it is. Things like masking. Yeah, yeah, certain yeah. COVID policies, right? There's, there's a sense that, that you, you need to be, I, I need to be able to tell you what to do under this circumstance because you're hurting me. Right. And it's also, to be fair, it's not even entirely a left-wing phenomenon. I mean, no, Trump was a cry bully in many Trump ways. Trump was right? the, the biggest cry bully. And, you know, something that my colleague Noah Rothman has, has been saying on and off now for a while, which is that. The right in America today, and this is sort of something that I, I largely think Trump sort of imported from the left, they suffer from a massive persecution complex. 
Yeah. And, and that is a big part of, of what this is all about. Well, I want to just sort of clarify. I think there's a distinction between having a persecution compl complex. Almost every autocrat in the modern era has some kind of persecution complex. So even at the height of the horrors of, you know, the great leap forward, Mao would still talk about how there were agents all over trying to destroy the revolution. And you can find examples of this over and over and over again, especially in the Arab world. So that's just kind of regular old authoritarian demagoguery. And then there's people who have persecution complexes that then like, you know, whatever, they turn that persecution complex into the fuel that drives them to either seek their vengeance or do whatever they're going to do. The cry bully is very specific. Somebody who not only has this persecution complex, but uses the fact of the harm that's being done to them, usually in some kind of microaggression or some sort of, you know, offense that has more to do with manners as an excuse to then bully or persecute by appealing to some authority, someone else. And it's obviously usually and often abused, you know, for personal reasons, but that's kind of the, I think the cry bully is different in that respect that it's like an appeal to the, it's an appeal to the hall monitors or the principal in a way, as opposed to just simply saying like, you know, the whole world's out to get me. What am I going to do? I think that's an interesting distinction, but I also, I do think it's helpful though, to, to consider mm -hmm. that, that persecution complex is a sort of common feature of an authoritarian personality. Totally. That, that, that it's still, whatever the balance is in a case of a genuine authoritarian or, or, a, or a cry bully, uh, I think they're both sort of critical elements of, of, you know, being able to do that. And I think, you know, the left strikes me very broad terms is made up of sort of two distinct types of people. I think they're a first type who's sort of the animating force and they have a genuine urge to tell other people what to do. They want to scold. And when you have that urge, it's very rare that you, you just simply go forward and start telling people what to do. You need to, to come up with a sort of cover story about how you're doing good. And this as a cover story, you need to first to sell to others You're sure. and, and, and to justify it for yourself, <coughs> you know, so you cannot, don't you, you shouldn't, but you cannot buy those, those things because you are destroying the planet. You shouldn't eat that food because you're culturally appropriating it. And it's all in the service of this good. The other part of the left, I think doesn't particularly want to boss anyone around, isn't particularly interested in scolding, but they do want to do good. And they're susceptible to the cover stories and they sort of look on and say, oh, well, if it's, if they're, if this is just about being nice, then, then we should, then, you know, why not uh, make the effort to, to, to be nice. And in that way, the, the sort of first half, the, the, the scolders sort of sell their agenda to the, the well-meaning rest. So let's get specific because this is the week. And you've talked about it on your podcast and other people. It's a big topic, but this is the week where the Washington Post, you know, turned into kindergarten cop. And, you know, this woman, Felicia Sanmez, who had considered Dave Weigel, who is another reporter there, a close friend, you know, kind of tags him. This starts on Friday. And it has gone on now for like six days of all over 
Dave Weigel's retweet, which he then unretweeted of, you know, a C plus joke. Women, all women are bi, either polar or sexual. And then his apology on Twitter and personal apology saying, hey, listen, I'm sorry. And he has now been suspended without pay for a month. And meanwhile, Taylor Lorenz, who commits lots of more serious, at least journalistic sins, so to speak, has we don't know that she's been disciplined and she, you know, was unclear. And this is a separate story, but she's somebody who, you know, is constantly kind of parading around how she's online, she's covering online and she's constantly the victim of harassment. And yet a lot of the journalism that she does is is not only unfair, but it, it can result in the harassment of her targets. And so there is a kind of element of crybillyism, as demonstrated in this recent issue with the with the Washington Post, which is, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. So if you object to me overreacting to your retweet, you're harassing me and you're making the problem worse. And if you just shut up, then, you know, you can't defend yourself. I mean, do you think that's basically right? And what's your view on all that? Yeah, I think the the cry element of the cry bully is what gives you cover. That's yeah, that's that's, that's your right. shield. And then the bullying, you you go on offense, and yeah, it's it's she. Which what we saw this week is the sort of square root of it all, you know. <laughs> but like, it, it it plays out on a on a bigger scale too. I mean, it's also what happens when say Ilhan Omar says yeah. something, tweets something like, "U.S. legislators support uh, Israel because it's all about the Benjamins baby." And then you're trying to silence me by saying it's anti-Semitic. Yeah, or yeah, or right. or she says Israel has hypnotized the rest of the world into disguising its not seeing its evil. I wish. Uh, and then breaks. <laughs> if then, only. And then there's a natural response to this, and then she charges. And this is not just her; others do this, but I'm just this one just occurred to me. She's, it, the charges not only leave me alone, but you're you're bullying me because I'm a minority, because I'm yeah. a woman. And I'm getting death threats yeah. because you've criti- you've responded to my criticisms or you've misogynistic you're, 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 and, right. and Islamophobic. Yeah. <laughs> right. It does seem that one of the flaws in the crybilly playbook is that they is that crybillies are either incapable or just dishonest about the fact that they would never tolerate what they are doing in terms of what others are doing. So. The whole, I mean, Taylor Lorenz does this over and over again. It's like a pattern. You see her saying, I'm getting harassed because, you know, people don't like what I wrote. And yet she is like, you know, kind of summoning various dogpile mobs on her topics. And it's like you would never expect someone to do that. So, you know, when people, I guess other post reporter, this guy, you know, tried to respond, Felicia Sanmez then said, this person is trying to silence me. I can't believe it. And then she does another 50 tweet thread. And I don't want to like spend too much time on it because Washington Post just one newspaper. It's an important newspaper, no doubt about it. This is not a show, but it's it is this kind of new way of exerting power in 2022 America. Well, you know, I, I think it's an important point because victimhood generally, right? Claiming victimhood used to be something historically that was largely looked down on in culture. Yeah. Not that you didn't recognize genuine victims that you assessed to be victims, but sort of embracing that as an identity for yourself used to be looked down upon. And there's no shame around that now. In fact, you've become a sort of celebrated class. And it's the shamelessness that's at work, I think, that trips them up, that, that, that 
that gets them to make these sort of shameless right things and the and these 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 you know complete hypocritical moves well and it's also about control because i mean it's so crazy to me that obviously you have to be looking for it to 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 even notice dave weigel retweeting something and then this is presented as creating a toxic workplace that i know that this one of my colleagues retweeted this joke this is terrible doesn't matter that he apologizes for it but it's not that's not the case what what's really going on is it's like a hunt for heretics you're looking for anybody who isn't pure as you are and so in that respect it's just entirely about not only like getting people to self-censor but it's about controlling discourse basically and to sort of it, it it short circuits that discourse so we're in and what i don't think that the washington post or the felicia Simons of the world and uh, want to sort of get your thoughts on this i don't think they know what they understand is that by creating this kind of all of this by stifling all of this discourse they are blinding themselves to the flaws and the ridiculousness of their own positions so at a certain point because we still are a democracy you're going to have to face the voters you're going to have to eventually you know, your ideas of what you think is how the world should be ordered is going to have to sort of make contact with reality. And you are ill-equipped to do that if you are so fragile that you can never be in contact with anything that offends you or challenges you or slightly disrupts your delicate manners, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they they get these ideas inside relatively small bubbles. Yes. Uh, in the within this social justice identitarian world of the left and within a particularly disgruntled as we said the um persecution complex right but yeah i think they're blind to the to the fact that for the rest of the world i i, I think embracing the identity of victim is still a turnoff i mean it's sort of nothing saps my sympathy quicker you know, than, than someone announcing their, their own victim status. And in terms of it sort of being on the hunt for, for offenses and, and finding it everywhere, there's definitely, and this is the, the scary part, there's a sort of creeping aspect to it. Yes. Where, where you, you, you start out with saying, I'm, I'm offended by a, a something sort of genuinely transgressive, and then it moves smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually you, you have someone suspended for retweeting a joke. It kind a of dumb joke. Me, yeah, like it uh, kind of reminds me. There was this this movie called Safe in 1995 by Todd Haynes, and it wasn't about this, but it was about something I think analogous, which was this sort of people who began to think they were allergic to all sorts of environmental right, 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 things, right, right, and their world just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And first, they decide they're they're allergic to their their dry cleaning chemicals, and next, it's the the water in their faucet. Next, their their air they're and you end up, you know, so these in a in a hazmat suit, you know, literally, and that these these people are sort of in an ideological hazmat suit, right? And that they don't have because when you lose that kind, it's like it's a little bit like what we experienced under lockdown. When you when you no longer have access to lots of germs, then your defense, your immune system, your defenses actually get weaker, and you are going to get more sick, and it's actually going to exacerbate the problem. I want to ask now, like. I can't decide because what happened at the Washington Post is just terrible. And it, it makes me kind of hopeless if you're on our side of the small, we want to sort of return to small liberalism and some sort of balance and get back to sanity. 
But on the other hand, there have been some really good signs recently in the culture. Like I'm thinking of Netflix, the memo to employees. It feels like we're kind of getting out of this, this hothouse of 2020 and 2021. And yet you still see some institutions like the Washington Post kind of still succumbing to it. What's your read at this point? Is I, I mean, you could look at Ilya Shapiro at Georgetown as another example. He he said, you know what, I don't want to be part, I don't want to play this game anymore, even though he was technically reinstated. Is that good or bad? I'm trying to figure out, like, are we turning a corner or are we just going to have to deal with this for the foreseeable future? I think we're certainly turning a corner in the sense that there's no question that a lot of Americans are fed up with this stuff. Right. But their ability to act on being frustrated with it and to risk putting their professional lives in jeopardy, that's still the tough one. That's the sticking point. I mean, I have to say, I think, you know, one of the things that, that Weigel did that I thought was a mistake was apologize. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. Because he's someone who's, uh, he has a big Twitter presence. He's a, he's a, he's a journalist. He's already now been targeted. There's, there, the, the, the sharks are sort of swimming around. If we hope, as I do, for people to show bravery in the face of this, of, the, of, of, of this sort of cry bully, identitarian authoritarianism i hope i hope to see that from ordinary people you know who who are sort of pushing papers without a, a, a big yeah twitter presence without a social media presence without a, a large digital platform with without a job where you write your opinion and because it, it's much harder for them because no one sees what they suffer when they're called to, to the mat for 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 having offended a, a cry bully you know in sort of regular office and then you get someone like Weigel, who he could have he could have come out on Twitter and said, I didn't do anything wrong, or maybe, I, maybe this was ill-considered, but let's not make a big deal out of this. Instead of giving the, 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 the entire sort of full-throated, sort of, you know, known script of, sorry, that I was, was unthinking and people were offended and I offended people. And all, I, don't, I think that's a terrible example because he could have gotten people on his side had he, had he actually stood up to it a little bit. And I don't think it helps you in the long run. I think the, the playbook here is that when you apologize, you are, you are advancing uh, your own demise. Well, I, I think I, think I, I want to push last, back slightly, but I don't know. Say, say, well, last point, because the apology is not considered to be, it's not taken as genuine regret. It's yeah, not, yeah, no, it's not I considered reflection. Right. It's, oh, now he admits his crime. We've got him. Okay, so that's a very good point. However, I would like to get back to a culture and a society where if you are offended and you say, I'm offended, and then you apologize, that's it. Like, move on, everybody. And like, we, we got to get to this point. I did an episode earlier about accepting apologies, which is something we seem to have forgotten how to do. And so there's a part of me that's sort of like, well, I'd like to live in the world where Dave can say sorry for the retweet and everybody can just go back to work and it's fine. I think you're correct that we do not live in that world. And this Felicia Sanmez woman will never, she, that she's, I mean, I don't know what's going on. They, they claim to be, she claims to be good friends with Weigel and then she does this. That is a whole separate issue. I'm like, that's Soviet to me. So, but I would like to get back to that point where an apology is sufficient and you shouldn't have to feel like, I mean, in my view, 
I have uh, fairly traditional views on the gender binary. And, but if somebody wants to, you know, be referred to by a certain pronoun and I screw it up and I didn't know it or I forgot or whatever, I'm not going to like die on that hill. I just, you know, I'm going to be polite. I'm going to say, hey, I'm really sorry. If you're going by MX now, I will refer to you as MX. No problem. Because I, you know, that to me is like a personal choice. I, you know, even though we would disagree maybe on the, how appropriate it is to do hormone therapy in middle school or something like that. But I don't have an, you know, most of the time, I guess I'm saying that, like, I just don't have an issue with an apology. You follow what I'm saying? Oh, a hundred percent. Well, because yeah. if I were to genuinely hurt someone that was a decent person by, by yeah. calling them to their face, the, the, the wrong gender, I would feel bad about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so the, the apology would, would be, uh, sincere. Um, if I made a joke or rather, if I retweeted a joke. That, it off- that offended someone who was sort of on the perpetual hunt for offense. And then she, she, she tried very publicly to, to have me fired or, or suspended. I would not feel bad. And I, yeah, would, yeah, no, I know. I, I, I wouldn't agree. give the There's apology. Right. No, no, no. And then, and it's like, I mean, this kind of gets to this issue of, you know, 50, 60 years ago at the second wave feminism gets going with Betty Friedan, there's this slogan, the personal is political. And I think we understood what that meant at the time, meaning that there are a lot of issues in terms of the relationship between a husband and a wife or in the household that are inequitable and the feminist movement wants to change that. And I actually don't have a problem with a lot of that stuff. I was, my mother's very feminist. Yet the notion that the personal is political is destroying our country right now because everything is political and we should just, and that's, and you're, and I think, you know, as you said, apologies are really important on a personal level on a political level, apologies feed the cry bully beast, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's, it's blood in the water. And by the way, you see that in case after case, well, you know, whenever you see a college professor is, is, yes. is, is on the ropes or fired, the 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 narrative is always the same. They say something in class that some students decide they're offended about. They write a letter to the dean. They organize some other students. The the, the dean comes and talks to the professor. Professor issues a, an apology. Then they get mad at the apology. Often, like something in the apology was insufficient and and showed further evidence of of their cruelty. And then the, the whole and right and this whole time. The people who get most offended, particularly on college campuses, are like advertising how afraid they are, how they're how harmed they've been, how difficult it is, how tired they are. They're everyone, all the progressive activists are always so tired. It's always labor and they're doing all this other stuff. And they're always talking about this. And I'm like, you have the power in all of these situations. It's up to you about whether this professor who this is this person's entire career in life. We'll be able to sort of, you know, continue on or not. The power really does rest and that, but they're all constantly kind of always displaying the fact that they are marginalized and powerless, which is, that's the whole cry-billy stance in a nutshell. And the sort of trump card term here is unsafe. I feel oh, unsafe. No, it's unbelievable. And it is, it's an astounding choice because it's now come to be used purely metaphorically. When, 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 yeah. when, when a cry-billy says I'm unsafe, they do not mean that my physical well-being is in danger. 
there's no threat to their health here. Right. It is, it, it means I'm uncomfortable or I have to confront something that I, that I didn't want to have to confront. Someone disagrees with me and this has now come to me unsafe. And, you know, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Eli, because it's a question that I have and I, and I ask myself in thinking about this over and over, and I, and I think I come down different places on different days. To what extent do the cry bullies mean it in terms in meaning, are they feeling genuinely traumatized or, or is there absolutely nothing to that? And this is purely sort of an instrument to, to, to silence and hurt their enemies. You know, I think it's probably a little bit of both, but I mean, would you be surprised, Abe, if you found out that people who are conditioned to basically believe that the entire world is systemically out to get them for all of these reasons and, you know, is, is, is unsafe and there's all this harm out there and they've had, you know, we have had in many ways, it's, it's, you know, 20, 30 years ago when schools began bully proofing and dealing with bullying, that was a good thing. Bullies were horrible. I mean, we grew, we're the same age. We grew up in the seventies and eighties. It's a lot of things. It's like kind of amazing that went on, you know, the kind of hazing, you know, freshmen and all kinds of stuff like that in high schools. And it's good that we don't live in that world anymore. It's also good that we don't live in a world where it's acceptable for the people who have the power in a, in a workplace to create what used to be known as a hostile work environment because they were all, you know, grabbing asses and telling jokes and all this other stuff. There's a totally fair point there that, you know, the culture's changed. It's good that this changed. So this is coming out of an evolution over time, over really like probably 50, 40 years or so, where we have changed as a culture and we are much more aware of trying to have more inclusive places, whether it's a school or a workplace or something like that. What's happened in the interim is that a kind of there's the, the, the people who have there now we're now a, a, a kind of a, a we're, we're, we're preparing certain kinds of people to expect this sort of mistreatment in these places to, to kind of, and then, so I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if they really did feel that they were unsafe. If, you know what I'm saying? If you have everybody telling them that and reinforcing it, then yeah, I'm sure some of them do believe it. I think some of people are doing it cynically for purely power reasons, but other people are doing it probably sincerely. Yeah. I mean, it sort of occurs to me now that, that you could probably only describe yourself as feeling unsafe because uh, someone retweeted a joke, say, because you're, you're not that familiar with what it's actually like to feel unsafe. Well, that's a very good point. And, and so I think if, 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 if that is the sort of totality of your ad adverse experience, then yeah, maybe that does the trick. Maybe that, maybe that does make you feel unsafe. Well, before you go, Abe, and thank you again, someone for coming on my podcast here. I want to ask you, just get a sense of how do we get out of it? Because I don't know. I mean, there's a part of you because it, it's so frustrating. We know people who have been, you know, who have kind of gone through the ringer because of this stuff. And it's, there's a sense where like, you know what, I want them hoisted on their own petards, you know, like the post should fire this woman. But I don't know that it changes that way. I think at a certain point, you know, I don't know if it's as simple as like, hey, call bullshit be brave. I don't know if it's just that. And I want to get your sense of, are we, how do we fully get out of it? Cause I think the way to do it is like, you know, Ted Sarandis, like the, the Netflix guy 
saying, you know, maybe this isn't the place for you to work if you feel that way. Those are, that's how we know the culture's moving. I mean, yeah, I largely agree. You know, the thing about the Netflix move in which, you know, he, he, he told his employees that if you're, if you're offended or, or made to feel unsafe by our content, maybe this is the place for you, which it was very encouraging. But I think the difference between, say, Netflix and stay, stay with the Washington Post is that the Washington Post is largely sort of dedicated to promoting the very ideology that the, the sort of literature of, of feeling unsafe, you know, and they're, I think, hoping to, as, as you know, a lot of sort of left liberal leaning outlets are today, they, they're, they're trying to give their readership what it, what they think it wants. I don't think woke shows on Netflix have done very well for them. So, right. so there's, so there's a profit issue here that allows them to say, Hey, you know, suck it up, but it's going to be very hard for other companies to follow suit. Even if, even if you're not in the business of, of, of writing ideological opinion, because bullies were scary in one way, which is that you, you did, they did make you feel unsafe. Cry bullies are scary in another way, which is that you don't want to be seen. If you, you can't oppose them because you don't want to be seen as the bully, as the bully. Um, right. And that's, and that's a very scary proposition for these places. But again, as I say, I think most people looking on have moved past this. It's the institutional salience of it that I'm, I'm not, I think I, I actually do think it's going to take some big moves, some bold moves, some, some mm-hmm. people calling bullshit and, and saying enough is enough. Is there an opportunity, you think that like you could ever win over some of the people who are like these prominent cry bullies? I mean, I, I'm asking it because there's a part of me that would just like to get back to regular old discourse. Well, you know, I agree with you on this and I disagree with you on that. And can we just go on instead of it devolving into, you know, the fact that you disagreed with me makes me feel unsafe. I think it depends on how much of this is psychology and how much of it is. Politics. That's a very good point. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, sure. people do change politically. I have, I continue to, you know, in yeah. small ways, sometimes big ways. And sometimes it's not even a direct result of someone sort of arguing you, arguing success, arg- successfully arguing, arguing you out of your position, but it's just the sort of accrued experience and, and, and contemplation of an issue. And, and you do change. As you said, if, if the personal is now synonymous with the political. And if this is more a sort of psychological issue than a political one, then no, right? I don't know. Then I don't know how you, how you talk someone out of this. This is a fundamental part of their character. So I think so is you have to deprive them of the tools of enforcement. And that's, and that's what they've been granted now in recent years to an unprecedented extent. Well, in this respect, would it make sense for Dave Weigel to turn into a cry bully? Because, I mean, listen, if you go through, I mean, I don't recommend this to anybody listening, but <laughs> if you go through the Twitter spat, he was, hur- I mean, there were, there was incredible abuse that was hurled at him even after he apologized. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not of the view that I feel like if you're a public figure like we are and you go on Twitter, then, you know, you're just going to have to deal with it. You mute accounts or whatever. And, you know, I've gotten all, but if you subscribe to the Taylor Lorenz view, that 
that stuff is 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 a as a form of violence almost, then can't Dave Weigel make a kind of credible claim at certain point saying, listen, by making a big deal out of this, Felicia, what you've done is you've invited these mobs and made me feel unsafe. I mean, at a certain point, is there possible to turn it around and say, no, there's no way. No, because he's he's on the wrong side of the intersectional matrix, right? So if Dave Weigel decides to, so to do gender transition, now he's got now he's got now now, now he's now he's now he's in the game. Yeah, sure, sure. No, look, if anything, he should he should pull an Ilya Shapiro, quit, come out swinging. He'll get hired somewhere else. Can you imagine, by the way, explaining this to someone living like a hundred or fifty years ago or something, and saying like, "Listen, um, this guy," and like you're trying to explain what it all means, but there is a way out for him. He 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 could do surgery to get rid of his genitalia and people would look at you like are you nuts like what this is what's happened to my country hey you you could try explaining it to someone 15 years ago yeah exactly no I mean, 15 is... years ago you couldn't explain it people would think you were like an an unfunny like conservative try hard comedian like you were just oh come on nobody thinks that and yet that's like a real it seems like that's I mean, I don't think that obviously, like, I think for us, our generation, the Michael, me, you, whatever, we're in one place because we're Gen X and we kind of lived through other things and we understand how the world works. But if you're coming up now, if you're like in high school right now and you're looking around, you're like, how do I get one of these identities, you know, so that I can be on the right side of these kinds of things and have a voice and not just have to shut up and, you know, walk on eggshells all the time. Well, that's why the categories are expanding. That's why you have a whole catalog of identities to choose from now, more than ever, because there's there's one out there for everyone. And yeah, like everybody, you can choose to be queer at this point, and like and still be heterosexual, which is fascinating to me. Yes, although I I still continue to think, and I've said this on the commentary podcast as well, that yeah, at a certain point, the younger generation is going to reject all this in a very big way. Yeah, I I predict something like a a right wing 1960s. Because you have all the elements. Well, I don't. I, what I don't want is like a, a right-wing weather underground. No, no, but but unfortunately, that something like that will likely be an element of it. it's. It's going to be the '60s, complete with the recklessness. But but either way, it won't only be reckless. I think I think there's going to be uh, a generation who says, "I'm I've been scolded and moralized at for being something evil that I'm not, or being a victim that I'm not." I don't, I don't need this. This is, this is all hypo, hypocritical nonsense. And which is, you know, a kind of, kind of what animated what went on with American youth in the sixties. Or I think you're, I think, by the way, I think that's, I think you're right. I think there will be something like, I hope it manifests itself in terms of really cultural brilliance. Me too. We, we have, you know, and there were, there've always been like some kind of closet conservatives in, in that kind of Pete Townsend. I always say as a conservative, but it's also possible that as you expand the categories of oppression into gender issues and, and sort of gender fluidity and things like that, you will lose more traditional folks, whether it's just regular old gay or lesbian, but also blacks and Latinos who I think you're going to find more and more just sort of saying, what is this? Like, what are you going to tell me that I'm the bad guy? And because I don't agree with this, you know, I mean, there's a whole, so it, it's possible that what you could find is 
I, I don't think it's totally crazy. A more racially diverse Republican Party in 20 years than the Democrats, who will be whiter and, you know, more elite. And because they will have, you know, they will they will sort of continue to invent these other ways and until it becomes totally ridiculous. And I, I think we've seen yeah. um, a, a, some of this already, certainly. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned Latinos, they are drifting from the Democratic Party in droves. And right. Because they're saying, don't don't tell me what I am. Don't don't tell me I'm Latinx. And and, yeah. and by the way, don't necessarily group me in with this um, sort of umbrella of people of color. I have I have my own concerns, my own issues. Yeah. And from the way you speak, I don't think you really understand them. You know, and, and also same with with the parental pushback on uh, critical race theory in schools. There were there were parents of of all ethnicities who said, I don't want black parents who said, don't tell my daughter that 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 her that her horizon is limited yeah. because she's a perpetual victim. But and I don't think it's going to I think it's going to be much harder as we see these trends kind of continue if they do indeed continue to to pull kind of cry bully status. You know, Taylor Lorenz went to a Swiss boarding school and she's a she's a white lady. And if she was not on the left, she was on the right, people would be calling her Karen all the time. So I just wonder like how long. It, but hey, you know, it's nice work when you can get it, I guess. Right. I mean, she's pulling this off. She's still at the post and Dave Weigel is suspended without pay for a month, which is just still incredible to me, which is why I did this episode. You know, it's astounding. And you know what? They are Karens. That that's that's precisely what 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 they are. Well, I mean, I I don't know. Like I, I remember when the whole Karen thing started, Abe, and then uh, well, I guess we'll end this podcast, but like I remember when the Karen things started. My mother's like very best friend and sort of an aunt to me is named Karen. And I just felt very bad about it. And I was just like, well, this is terrible. There are all kinds of people who were named Karen, you know, up until like whatever 2019 or 2020, when we decided that Karen was this annoying white lady and it's unfair to them, but it is, I say, so I say it's just sweet Karen. And it's unfair that I, that I, that I grew up in the seventies with the same name as a Vigoda, but you know. Oh, a Vigoda. What's wrong with a Vigoda? Now he's cool. Oh, I know it's, I hear you. Okay. And in fact, I like my name still. It's a great name. Abe, thank you so much. This was great. As always, I'll see you soon. And listen, if you like this podcast, rate and review it. We love the reviews. They've all been good. And I have to say, this is strange. I almost have 80 reviews now, all five stars. So keep it coming. Five stars, five stars, five stars. I really appreciate it. And anyway, thanks again, Abe. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.